Today's podcast is brought to you by newspapers.com, the ultimate destination for exploring the mysteries of the past. If you're fascinated by true crime, get ready to dive into the stories that made headlines. Newspapers.com offers a billion pages of historical newspapers from the U.S. and beyond, and you can search the entire collection in seconds. Their vast newspaper collection is a goldmine for eyewitness accounts, crime scene photos, news reports, and more. Whether you're interested in famous crimes or long-forgotten cases, Newspapers.com gives you a front-row seat to more than 300 years of history. For our listeners, Newspapers.com has a special offer. Use the code CUPOFMURDER for an exclusive 20% discount on your subscription. That's promo code CUPOFMURDER at Newspapers.com. Sign up today and start unraveling the true crime mysteries that keep you up at night. Hey guys, I have a podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. Proof, the investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here is releasing its highly anticipated second season where they investigate the murder of 18-year-old Renee Ramos. The first season, which if you haven't listened to yet, you totally should, saw the release of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend, Brian Bowling. And thanks to evidence unearthed by proof, on December 8th, 2022, both Daryl Lee Clark and Kane Joshua Story were finally freed after 25 years behind bars. With that same investigative drive, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, and this time, they are on the streets of Manteca, California, to find out who really killed Renee Ramos. In proof, murder at the warehouse, you hear how, on June 5th, 2000, Renee's body was found buried beneath a pile of debris inside a new Home Depot building. And how, despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, her boyfriend, 18-year-old Jake Silva, and 33-year-old Ty Lopez, were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a... Weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cop of murder. One decision can place someone in the crosshairs of danger. On December 26th, 1985, a woman hell-bent to protect mountain gorillas in Rwanda was brutally killed by an unknown person or persons who disagreed with one of her many bold decisions. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, Sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Diane Fossey was born on January 16, 1932 in San Francisco, California, to a fashion model and a real estate agent. After divorcing when Diane was just six years old, her mother remarried and though her father attempted to keep contact, his ex-wife discouraged it. Losing contact with her father and not being treated as a daughter by her new stepfather, Diane's childhood took a bit of a bad turn. With no emotional support and struggling with personal insecurities, young Diane turned her attention to animals who would always give her the love and devotion she was so desperate for. Though a sad beginning, it was this connection that would, in addition to becoming quite the equestrian, lead Diane to a career revolving around animals. 
After graduating from high school, Diane, following her stepfather's insistence, enrolled in business courses at the College of Marin in San Francisco. But after spending the summer on a range in Montana, she switched things up and began pre-veterinary courses at the University of California, Davis. Unfortunately, once she decided to go against her stepfather's wishes, he and her mother cut off all financial support and left Diane to find her own way in the world. Working as a clerk at a department store, as well as a machinist at a factory, she managed to squeeze in her classes and lab work. But struggling with a few basic sciences, she failed her second year of the program. Feeling a bit defeated, Diane transferred to San Jose State College, switched things up and studied occupational therapy, and got her bachelor's degree in 1954. Getting a job in her field and interning at various hospitals, in 1955, she moved to Kentucky and began working as an occupational therapist at Cosair Crippled Children's Hospital in Louisville. Here, she began working as a therapist with disabled Appalachian children, who she believed were, quote, lost in this world of ours, and became incredibly close to co-worker Mary White Henry. A wife of one of the doctors, Michael J. Henry, the couple invited Diane to join them on their family farm, where once again, she began working with animals. Finally, getting the love and support that she needed from a found family, Diane began spending all of her free time with the horses on the farm. After initially turning down the offer to join the Henrys on an African tour due to her lack of finances, in 1963, Diane made a life-changing decision, borrowed $8,000, took out all of her life savings, and went on a seven-week visit to Africa. Arriving in Nairobi in September of 1963, Diane met actor William Holden, who, in addition to owning the Treetops Hotel, introduced her to a safari guide named John Alexander. For the next seven weeks, John took Diane all throughout Kenya, Tanzania, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and what is now Zimbabwe. The final two sites on his tour were visits to Olduvai Gorge, the archaeological site of Lewis and Mary Leakey, and Mount McKenna in Congo, where back in 1959, American zoologist George Schaller carried out a year-long study on the mountain gorilla. Meeting the Leakeys while they were examining the area for hominid fossils, they spoke with Diane about the work of famed primatologist Jane Goodall and the importance of long-term research on the great apes. Unbeknownst to Diane at the time, this visit would completely alter the course of her entire career and her life. Breaking her ankle during the visit with the couple, on October 16th, she was staying in Walter Baumgartel's hotel in Uganda, where the longtime advocate for gorilla conservation introduced her to Kenyan wildlife photographers, Joan and Alan Root. After chatting a bit, the couple agreed to take Diane and John Alexander to their camp. It was there that, during her visit, Diane Fossey first encountered wild mountain gorillas. Completely changed by the experience, when she came home to Louisville, she promptly began repaying her loans and published three articles in the Courier Journal detailing her visit to Africa. By 1966, Diane, with the help of the Leakeys, secured the funding necessary to return to Africa and begin studying the gorillas in the Congo. Following the footsteps of the people before her, Diane, after studying Swahili and auditing a class on primatology during the eight months it took to get her visa, packed up her entire life and moved to Africa to finally follow her lifelong dream 
and work with animals. Arriving in December of 1966, Diane, again with the help of the Leakeys and Joan Root, secured all the necessary provisions and an old canvas-topped Land Rover, and along the way to the Congo, stopped at the research center and met Jane Goodall. After studying her research methods, Diane, accompanied by Alan Root, began her studies in Kabara in early 1967. Taught basic guerrilla tracking, Diane began living within the jungle and would only come down into town once a month to restock on her supplies. Through her work, which she claimed was made easier by her earlier job with children, saying earning their trust helped prepare her to earn the trust of the guerrilla, Diane identified three distinct groups of primates in her area by mimicking their actions and submitting to their behavior. Unfortunately, the political unrest in the Congo forced Diane to pack up and flee the area. On July 9, 1967, soldiers arrived at her camp and escorting her and her research workers down the mountain, she was detained for the next two weeks. Escaping through bribery, Diane arrived at Walter Baumgartel's hotel in Kisoro, where her escort was quickly arrested by the Ugandan military. Advised by the Ugandan authorities not to return to the Congo, Diane agreed and, against U.S. embassy advice, restarted her studies in Rwanda instead. Setting up her new camp in the Rwandan foothills of the Virunga Mountains, on September 24, 1967, she founded the Karasok Research Center and became known by the locals as, quote, the woman who lives alone on the mountains. Unlike the gorillas in the area where she first worked, these animals were much more familiar with human poachers, so it took Diane a bit longer to insert herself into their pack. When they finally did welcome her, Diane began studying them and made groundbreaking observations that in 1970 earned her a spot on the cover of National Geographic magazine. By 1980, she had obtained her PhD from Cambridge University, was recognized as the world's leading authority on the physiology and behavior of mountain gorillas, and changed the way that scientists and the public viewed the relationship between gorillas. She lectured at Cornell University, wrote a best-selling book, Gorillas in the Mist, and was praised for her work by Nobel Prize winners. For years, Diane not only built trust with these elusive creatures, but became dedicated to helping protect them from other humans by any means necessary. Actions that gained her quite the reputation for showing no mercy to those who wronged her or her gorillas. Though always against the practice, in 1977, poachers killed her beloved gorilla, Digit, and Diane's crusade took on a far more obsessive tone. In a time where park rangers were known to accept bribes and allow poachers to set up traps for the gorillas, Diane, writing about three occasions where she witnessed the aftermath of the capture of an infant gorilla, an action that would end up costing 10 adult gorillas their lives due to their nature to fight to the death for their young, became known throughout the area as a fierce rival for anyone who tried to hurt the gorillas. Financing patrols to destroy the poacher's traps in her study area, Diane, with the help of her four African staffers, destroyed 987 traps within their research center. While she did what she could to protect her area, the rangers who did nothing to stop the poaching allowed for the virtual eradication of the elephant population in the eastern portion of the park and the death of over a dozen mountain gorillas. 
Not backing down, Diane helped to arrest several poachers, leading to some prison sentences, and was known to, on some occasions, take things into her own hands and physically beat the men that she captured. Dedicated to her cause, the locals started to believe that Diane was a practitioner of dark magic and would use spells to protect her gorillas. Still feeding off her rage and sadness over what happened to Digit, Diane would sometimes capture and humiliate the poachers, hold their cattle ransom, and burn down either their hunting camps or even their own homes. Garnering worldwide attention for her anti-poaching cause, in addition to the work she did to reduce the downward population trend in mountain gorillas, Diane Fossey, a fiercely dedicated woman, would find herself in grave danger at the hands of the very men who she worked to eradicate. In the early morning hours of December 27, 1985, Diane Fossey was found murdered inside of the bedroom of her cabin at the far side of her research camp. Found face up near the two beds where she slept, seven feet away was a hole that was allegedly cut into the wall of her cabin by her killer, or killers, on the night of December 26th. Bludgeoned to death, the man who found her reported, quote, When I reached down to check her vital signs, I saw her face had been split diagonally with one machete blow. Her cabin had been ransacked and littering the floor with broken glass, overturned furniture, a 9mm handgun, and ammunition. All of her valuables remained where they were, including her passport, handguns, and thousands of dollars in U.S. bills, as well as traveler's checks, leading many to believe that robbery was not the motive. With some sources saying that she was killed by the very machete she had once taken from a poacher, the murder of Diane Fossey remains unsolved to this day. Shortly after the discovery, every single member of Diane's staff was arrested, including a man named Emmanuel Relicana, who was once a tracker who was fired after allegedly trying to kill Diane with a machete. All except for Emmanuel were released. He was later found dead inside the prison, having taken his own life by hanging. The Rwandan courts later tried and convicted a man named Wayne McGuire in absentia for her murder, claiming Wayne murdered the researcher to steal the manuscript of her much-waited-for sequel to Gorillas in the Mist, Investigators also said that he was not happy with his own research and wanted to use, quote, any dishonest means possible to ensure his success. Wayne McGuire returned to the U.S. in July of 1987, and because no extradition treaty exists between the U.S. and Rwanda, he remained in the country and refused to return to Africa, especially since he was sentenced to death by shooting for his alleged crimes. He later made a brief statement in the press conference in which he called Diane a, quote, friend and mentor, and the charges against him, quote, outrageous. Though several books have come out suggesting theories regarding her murder, including some claiming she might have been killed by financial interests linked to tourism or illicit trade, some even say that she may have had some damning evidence against gold smugglers who ransacked her cabin to try and find whatever it was she had on them. There is, however, one fairly popular theory. Many believe that Diane's own attitude may have led to her murder. A woman with a hot temper who allegedly mistreated many, Diane tortured her enemies, kidnapped their children, humiliated them, and did whatever was necessary to accomplish her goals. Not just with poachers, but with people who worked for her or anyone who worked in opposition. 
While most people place the blame on the poachers, others say it was her tit for tat that got her killed. Despite the charges filed and the many theories surrounding her murder, many thought the death might just have come from an even higher source. In 2001, Rwandan authorities said that Protus Sigirani Irazo, the governor of the province during Diane's time there, and the brother-in-law of the former Rwandan president, whose death sparked the 1994 genocide, might have ordered her death. Claiming she might have known too much about elite trafficking taking place within the Rwandan elite, and her efforts to restrict guerrilla-related tourism might have placed her in the crosshairs of some very prominent rulers. Though her murder is still, to most, unsolved, Diane Fossey's legacy lives on even today. Buried in a cemetery alongside Digit and her other guerrillas who lost their lives to poachers, Diane was left in the place she spent almost 18 years calling her home. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again to hear a terrible thing happened on December 27th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.